0: This morning, uh, we have the great privilege to hear from Matt Brown. He um, is a church planting pastor from New York who serves within the Redeemer Network, and he and Tom Ricks have worked together in church planting within our denomination, the EPC denomination, and Tom has really been eager for us to hear from him for quite a while. I think over a year now, he's been trying to get Matt here so that we could hear from him and uh, to hear his experiences in church planting Matt is the pastor of Resurrection Brooklyn and the lead pastor of the Park Slope Congregation. And his church was instrumental in helping start a residency program for church pastors around the country. So will you help me in welcoming Matt as he comes and shares God's word with us this morning? Thanks everybody. Uh, first, uh, I am, uh, I'm a church planter. I'm, I'm, I'm almost an habitual church planter. Before I was in uh, Brooklyn, New York, I was uh, at a church plant of Redeemer up in the suburbs just north of the city, um, serving the vastly overprivileged in Rye, New York. And, uh, and we met in a local school in a gymnasium that looked a lot like this. Uh, and so every week we would preach and lead worship from the foul line right down here. And so being here this morning, I just all these memories just come flooding back of all the setup that is involved uh, in worshiping like you do. So uh, I know there are a lot of very tired volunteers here every week, so good work. Um, it's also uh, it's great to be here, and uh, I, I was excited to come and, uh, and meet Tom's church because as I've been getting to know Tom over the last couple of years... He talks very, very highly of you all. He really loves being your pastor. And so I was excited to come and, and meet and meet his church. And, uh, and you are a lovely group of people. Uh, and as I was thinking about what I was going to do when I was here, uh, I've, I gave it a lot of thought for a lot of weeks, and I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. Uh, prayed, fasted over it, and finally the Holy Spirit instructed me as to what I should be doing here when I came to visit So you will imagine my surprise when Tom beat me to the ice bucket challenge. (laughs) I had no idea what I was going to do then. Um, And Tom challenged me to the ice bucket challenge, and I'd already done it, and my kids had seen me almost die of a heart attack because the water was so cold. I was not, there was no chance I was going to do that again. Um, Well, Tom has been asking me to come down, uh, as you heard, because... I've been involved in church planting, and for some reason, he thinks that you need to hear what what I've been about, what motivates me, the things that are on my heart, and I'm not entirely sure why, because Tom himself is a church planter. You guys are here involved in the church plant, and he has a lot of wonderful things to be saying too, but we do have different perspectives on things, and it's a great thing, and I'm happy that he has been hospitable to invite me here today, uh, so a little bit more about about what our work in Brooklyn is is all about. We I started uh, the first congregation. Of, uh, Resurrection Brooklyn, by the way, is a multi-site church, multi-congregational church up in Brooklyn, and we are committed to planting uh, neighborhood churches throughout what we say is God's favorite borough. Uh, we say now New York has five boroughs, and Brooklyn. And by the way, you're going to be utterly convinced of this when I'm done telling you. Brooklyn is God's favorite borough. Because God loves people more than he loves anything else. And Brooklyn is by far the largest borough in New York City. Two and a half million people. Uh, it'd be the fourth largest city in the United States if it were a city all on its own. So it's bigger than Houston. Brooklyn is gigantic. And there are, any, depending, on, depending on what realtor you ask, there are between 80 and 90 neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And, uh, and we are hoping and praying that God will allow us the opportunity to plant a number of churches in those neighborhoods. Um, to that end, let me also introduce today uh, Michael Sbrocco. Michael, stick your hand up over there. Michael is actually our newest church planter. Um, he, is, he and his family are living here in St. Louis uh, while they raise their money so that they can come up and plant a church in Brooklyn Heights, which is uh, one of the most historic neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and it's uh, very influential in our, in our city. So, uh, be praying for Michael, and after you write your tithe check here to Green Tree, you can write your second check to Michael. That'd be great. Um, so uh, it is. It really is a. It really is a pleasure to be here. And when Tom said that I was going to be the first uh, of a two-week mini series on mission and what it means to live as followers of Jesus Christ in this world, uh, I knew right away what passage I wanted to, uh, to look at together. It is one of my personal favorites. Uh, I love the book of 1 Peter. Uh, it's coming out of 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and Luther loved, uh, Martin Luther loved the book of 1 Peter. He said that there is nothing... There is nothing in, in all of the Bible that you can't find in First Peter. First Peter is kind of like the, the Bible condensed. You can find all sorts of wonderful theology and things. And so I think it's great for us to be looking at First Peter together. So let me read this morning's passage to us before we jump into it, and then um, I'll pray for us. And I think that's going to be up. Yes. First Peter 2, 1 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. So put away all malice... Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. For they are words of life to us. They are your words, penned by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, for your church throughout all ages. We thank you for these words, and we ask that you would help us to sit with you today, sit with Peter, that we might hear him, hear him speak to us, and encourage us, instruct us, and that we might see you more clearly. And as we do, we would follow you more faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of you may know the, uh, the, sh- the, Gothic, the Southern Gothic short story writer Flannery O'Connor. Uh, Flannery O'Connor is one of my favorite writers. Uh, my wife and I named our first child after her uh, Flannery and Flannery Rocks. Um, and, uh, and one of the things I like about Flannery O'Connor's stories is how kind of bizarre they are. Very angular. She has really weird characters. There are always, there's always some sort of strange twist in her stories that kind of make you tilt your head and think about the world in a bit different way. Now, my mother-in-law, uh, when we first had our, when we first had Flannery, uh, fourteen, almost fifteen years ago. Uh, when we gave Flannery her name, my mother-in-law said, why did you name her Flannery? And I said, well, because we love Flannery O'Connor. She said, well, who's Flannery O'Connor? So I explained it, and she said, well, do you have anything that I could read by Flannery O'Connor? I said, sure. I said, why don't you start with one of my personal favorites, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Great story. So she she went, she read the short story, and she came back to our house a couple weeks later, and she said, um... I don't really understand why you like her so much. And why did you have her read why did you have me read that story? I said, why? Why did why didn't you like that? She said, the mother-in-law was shot at the end of the story. (laughs) I said, Oh right, I forgot about that part. I wasn't sending any message. No, it's just a very interest anyway. So and one of my favorite things that Flair O'Connor has said. What she said was, the truth, when you find the truth, when you finally come and embrace the truth, the truth will make you odd. <laughs> the truth will make you odd. And that could be a subtitle for the entire book of First Peter. That the truth will make you odd. Because First Peter, Peter is writing to a beleaguered church community in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And these people because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because they're following Jesus, they are weird and they are standing out. Where all of their neighbors worship the Roman gods, worship the emperor of Rome as a god, they refuse. They refuse to eat meat that is sacrificed to idols. They make all sorts of decisions that are beginning to draw attention to them. And they're starting to find themselves ostracized. Their families are looking at them sideways. Their neighbors are thinking, what in the world are you doing? Some of them have been losing jobs. Some of them are losing spouses. And so Peter, in this passage, he's writing to encourage them, to build them up, to edify them and say, hey, I want you to know who you are. And then what does he call them? Sojourners, exiles. Sojourners and exiles. Exiles. In our modern parlance, we might call them homeless vagabonds. You can imagine Peter's parenting skills, can't you? I'm sorry that you feel like such a freak at school, sweetheart, but it's because you are a freak, right? That's what Peter is saying to them. Yes, I see you feel really odd. And everybody's looking at you, and it's so, it's so discouraging, and it can wear you down. But what I want you to see is that you are exiles and sojourners. You are weird in this world. But Peter isn't being cruel. Think about the language that Peter is using for this church. Think about what he's saying. He's saying you're exiles and you're, you're, you're sojourners in this world. You're aliens and strangers. Why? Because you are God's people. You're God's people. Let me read the passage to you again. But you are a chosen race, not all of it. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You hear those words? Those are words that have only, in all of history until this point, been been used to describe the people of Israel, God's chosen and precious people. And here Peter is using them to describe a church of Gentiles and Jews together in Asia Minor. That you are God's chosen people, his prized possession, a royal priesthood, That is staggering language for Peter to be using. But he also knows that it's a little bit dangerous. Because when you tell people something like this, when you tell people how amazing they are, there's a chance that it could go to their heads. This is actually what happened with the people of Israel, right? Right? Because by this time in history, the people of Israel had, had become so secure in their relationship with God that they had forgotten that they were called to be children of Abraham in order to bless the world. And so Peter comes right away and he reminds them, why is it they are the people of God? How did they become this people of God? And he says in the passage, you are God's people. Because of God's mercy. You're God's people because of God's mercy. You are choice, you are, you are, you are chosen, you are a, a royal possession here because God loves you. And Peter understood something significant. He understood that God always chooses to do his greatest work through those who are least deserving. This was true in Israel, right? Right? Back in Deuteronomy, God tells Israel that he loves them. And why does he love them? What does he say? He says, not because you were the biggest and most impressive people in the world, but because you were the least in number. You were small. You were insignificant. And therefore, I chose you because I loved you and because I wanted you to experience my goodness, my mercy, my grace. Peter knew that God always chooses the undeserving. And Peter knew that. He knew that personally. Remember Peter's story. Peter was a fisherman chosen to be one of Jesus' disciples. And he was a terrible disciple, he was awful. He was always fighting with people. chopping people's ears off. Like, he's just not a good... and And then he denies Jesus three times when Jesus is about to be crucified. And even after the resurrection, he's not a very good disciple. If you read the book of Galatians, you learn that Peter is actually kind of a racist. He's promoting the Jews over the Gentiles. And he's excluding the Gentiles from communion with the Jewish believers. Peter knows his own track record. And so here in this passage, Peter is actually writing to Gentiles and Jews together and he's saying, together you are the chosen people. Because why? Peter understood that we are only God's people because of God's mercy, because of God's grace. And that there is no room for boasting in the Christian life. That's wonderful news. And if it's, it's news that if we believe it, it will actually set us free. Because we will then be free from all the pursuits that we think give our lives meaning in this world. And you know what they are. You know the things that you think about, the things that wake you up at night, the things that you worry about, the things that take up all your mental and emotional bandwidth that you've invested yourselves in your job, your family, your kids. Some relationship. And you think about these things, and you think, these are the things that give me identity. These are the things that make me who I am. And so you're worried when they are ever threatened, they're ever going to be taken away. But Peter says, no, you must remember who you are. You must remember that you are a prized possession, that you are chosen for wonderful things. And that gets us to the second part of this. See, Peter is talking about the people of God, this church, these beleaguered churches in Turkey who are trying fitfully to serve Jesus. And as they do so, they're worn down, and they're odd, and their neighbors are looking at them. And then Peter says, you are a prized possession, a royal priesthood. Don't forget who you are. You are God's chosen people in Jesus Christ but that's not where he stops. and that's not where god stops. because god's prized possessions are not treated like our prized possessions. what do you do with your prized possessions? you put them in a brake front, you put them in a closet, you put them in a safe. you put them somewhere where they can't they can't be hurt. they can't be touched, and oftentimes they're not very useful. but that's not how god treats his prized possessions. Because we are not just God's people in Jesus Christ. We have also been put on God's mission in Jesus Christ. And that's what we find here in this passage. Let me read it to you again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light that you may proclaim. We're not just a people of God, that we are a people for God. We're called to serve him in this world. Leslie Newbigin, uh, church planter, bishop of Church of South India in the last century, he said, wherever it is forgotten that we are chosen in order to be sent, wherever men think that the purpose of election is their own salvation rather than the salvation of the world, then God's people have betrayed Their trust. You hear that? Whenever you think you've just been chosen so that you can really feel good about yourself, so you can experience some existential rest, that you've been chosen by God just so that your conscience can be put at ease, then you've betrayed your trust. And you failed to remember who you actually are in God. That's Newbigin's point. And I think that's Peter's point as well. So the question is, how do we proclaim? How do we do it? And Peter has a lot of ways here. First, we proclaim God's glories, God's goodness. We proclaim God's mercy in word. That's what proclamation means. It means that we actually talk about what God is doing in our lives and in this world. And here in this passage, Peter is actually assuming that the followers of Jesus Christ are going to talk about the gospel. They're going to share it with their friends and their neighbors. And he's assuming that they're doing that because that's what we all do. Think about your own life. What do you do when you hear good news? You immediately want to share it with somebody else. What do you do when you discover a good restaurant? You tell your friends about the restaurant. What do you do when you find out that you're pregnant? You call your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and you say, guess what? And it's so natural for us, right? This is what we do. We tell others about a good book, about a good movie. As human beings, that's how we're hardwired. We want to talk about the good things. And so Peter here is assuming that because we are chosen by God, because we are his prized possession in Jesus Christ, that we will therefore turn around and talk about our faith. And we will proclaim it in word. But that's not all he says. He also says that we are going to proclaim God's glories and excellencies indeed as well. We are going to go out into this world and we are going to display all of God's goodness. How God is at work in your life and in my life. Think about the things that he says here. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that's why throughout this letter, Peter is talking about very practical things. That in their lives, in their deeds, in the way they show hospitality to one another, the way they engage in marriage, the way they talk about and pray for their political leaders, especially the political leaders that they disagree with even the political leaders who are persecuting these Christians, Peter says you must display love for them. You must pray for them. You must honor them because God has put them in authority over you. That's one of the themes in Peter's letter because he knows something. He knows that when we just say good words that nobody is going to hear them unless they're also matched by our good deeds. And he actually says more. He says that by the, time, by the time you get to chapter 3, he says that people aren't even going to know about the good words unless you're already doing the good deeds. Listen. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you hear that? Be prepared to make a defense. Be prepared to give an answer for what you're doing. So be out there, be doing good deeds so that people will ask you why, and then you can proclaim the gospel to them in word. This is something we must always remember. That one of the things that is going to make us odd in this world, one of the things that's going to make us strange for our neighbors, is how we live our lives day to day. How you live your life at home, how you raise your kids, how you teach them what their priorities are, the way you, the way you spend your money and your time and your talents. All these things, Peter's saying, are the ways that you're going to be strange in this world. And he's just assuming that his readers will be because this is the response to the gospel. And think about how amazing this is, people, that God gives us the privilege as his people to do his work in this world and then as we proclaim the gospel in word and deed, doing things like serve St. Louis, loving one another, that God's kingdom will be manifested and revealed in this world. That's the high calling that's given to you and to me, that if we proclaim the gospel in word and deed, then our neighbors are going to see this and respond, and they will give glory to God as well. This is mission. But here's what I want to tell you. As amazing as this is, as incredible as it is that God uses your words and your deeds, my words and my deeds to manifest his kingdom in this world. If that was all Peter said in this passage, that would be the worst news I've ever heard. You know why? Because I don't do this. Do you? Is that how you live? That's not how I live. I don't proclaim the gospel day in and day out. I don't do it. I'm tired. I'm busy. I don't care about my neighbors that much. I don't love them like I should. Sometimes I feel just, sometimes I'm just, I feel hypocritical. Why? Because I can't even get past verse one of this passage. Let me read it to you again. So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. If you've managed to do that this week, raise your hand. Right? Friends, oftentimes I don't talk about the gospel. I don't proclaim it in word to my friends and family, to my neighbors who do not believe Because I know that my words and my deeds do not match up. And that's why this passage is great news. Because Peter is not addressing an individual. This letter is not written to an individual. It is written to Christians throughout Asia Minor. It is written to many congregations. It is, written to, it is written to churches like this all over the place. Why? Because Peter understands something very crucial about the Christian life. And it is this, that we can't possibly live the Christian life on our own, by ourselves. Peter understands that there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. He understands that the only way the world is going to see and hear about the excellencies of God is through churches like this one. Where people are working together, one with another, to display God's, God's grace and mercy. And holding one another up when we do not fulfill and live up to these standards. And reminding one another to live out the gospel and come back to Jesus for his mercy. And that is what you and I need so desperately. And that is what the world needs desperately. Because if anyone is going to see the gospel and understand it, it's not going to come just because you hand them a book. It's not going to come because you win an argument. It's going to come as they see the love of God manifested in a congregation like this. Let me come back to newbegin Let me read a quote from him. For the majority of Westerners, the Christian story is an old fairy tale which they have put behind them. It's not even worth listening to. One shuts the door and turns back to the television screen where endless images of the good life are on tap at all hours. How can this strange story of God made flesh, of a crucified Savior, of resurrection and new creation become credible for those whose entire mental training has conditioned them to believe that the real world is the world which can be satisfactorily explained and managed without the hypothesis of God? I know of only one clue to the answer to that question, only one real hermeneutic of the gospel, a congregation that believes it. Friends, this is your high calling in this world, to be a congregation that believes together, that serves together, that proclaims the gospel together. This is God's plan for you and for his people. And if we don't live it out, then we can't expect any fruit. But when we do live it out, we see a Abundant fruit in this world. God is faithful to the promises that we see here. He's been faithful in Brooklyn. We've seen this in countless ways. My current music director, Gerald Menke, a great steel guitar player, was invited to play by another band member many years ago. And he was very far from the Lord, I can promise you that. It's quite possible in his memory that he showed up to worship to play the steel guitar that morning, very hungover. And as he began to worship with us, week after week after week, he started to experience the love of our congregation. And when he had children, the people in our church made meals for him, for he and his wife and their family. And he started to bring his kids to church And he had a real experience of repentance where he came back to Jesus and he gave his life back to Jesus because of the way that our whole congregation loved them. And I have had the privilege of baptizing both of his kids now. And I hired him as my music director. I can give you lots of examples like this. Right this morning, I'm missing a reunion. A woman in our church, Monique, Monique has been in a psych ward for the last four months. She's back at church today. Why? She's back at church today because our congregation has loved her endlessly. Endlessly. They care for her. When she gets arrested, we visit her. We send her packages in the hospital. I bring her communion every week. She has visitors all the time to the point where her doctors and nurses have started to ask us if we can plant a church somewhere near the hospital. Disaster relief after Hurricane Sandy. We were the first to get involved, and we are still involved, and we are one of the only groups of people in Brooklyn that are, that are rebuilding homes anymore. And there are still hundreds of homes, if not thousands, that still need to be rebuilt. Two years later. And what has happened? As a result of that, the city comes to us and asks us what needs to get done. The Red Cross came to us and asked us if we would put in for a grant so that they could help us rebuild homes. And the people in the neighborhoods where we're working, the people in Sheepshead Bay, have asked us if we would plant a church. Other denominations have asked us if we would plant a church. Why? Because this faithful presence, because people come together in word and deed and proclaim the gospel. And, friends, I'm here preaching to the choir. You guys know this. You've been involved in church plants. You are a faithful congregation. You love one another so well. So, just let me encourage you to keep doing that. Keep being the place where people can come and be refreshed and nourished and hear the gospel and live it out faithfully. Be that congregation. Be encouraged because that is who you are. You're already getting involved in residency programs around the country that may or may not even help you eventually. You're committing yourself to church planting. Why? Because you know what Peter is saying. You understand his words. You know that it is only in a congregation where people can truly experience God's love. But that's never easy, friends. It's not easy to be in a church. It's not easy to be weird. It's not easy to devote your time and your talents and your money to these things. But when you do so, and your neighbors ask you, hey, where'd you, where were you Sunday? Oh, well, we were at church. Hey, where'd you go on vacation this summer? Well, we kind of took a cheaper vacation so we could give more money away. When you have these stories when your lives give evidence, then the excellencies of God will be proclaimed in this world. This is Peter's promise. And friends, this is what has happened. This is how the church grew in the Roman Empire. That's the great promise before us. God is faithful to these promises and he keeps these promises. And he will keep them here at Green Tree. And as you build a new building, as you get out of these confines, You're going to have opportunities to announce the gospel to your neighbors in word and deed. And I hope that you will take those opportunities. Because if you do, God will bless. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words. We pray that you would continue to impress them upon our hearts and minds. I pray for this church. I pray that you would help them to be a faithful people. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.